Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. If you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for an extra expense you may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Vincent and Theo Van Gogh were both pastor's kids. Vincent was older, impulsive, reclusive. Theo was younger, married, steadily employed. Vincent trained as a reformed pastor like his father and was sent as a missionary to England but returned home unsatisfied, a failure. Theo was a professional art dealer who made a modest living for himself and who used his connections to give his older artistic brother as much support as he could. In 1890, Vincent is in the south of France, painting like a madman, and like a madman, cuts off his ear, gives it to a prostitute he fancied, and almost dies as a result of the blood loss. This incident and Vincent's erratic behavior leading up to it ostracizes the painter from his parents, from his other artistic friends, everyone except his brother, Theo. In response, Theo and Vincent agree that the Painter should enter an insane asylum to get himself right in Arles, France. It's while in the asylum that from memory, drawing on his years of Bible study, Vincent paints the Good Samaritan, a, a painting about a story about a surprising hero showing gracious, costly love to an unmerited stranger left for dead by everyone else. Life in the kingdom is a life lived for others. I actually think that for Van Gogh, the, the Good Samaritan is a kind of a self-portrait, but I'm not going to talk about that now. Stay tuned to the end, and I'll show you why I think that. Jesus tells this parable in response to questions from an expert in the law. Uh, he stands up and wants to burnish his reputation with the crowd by jousting with Jesus. And you know the story. Uh, how can I inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor. 
and who is my neighbor? Any number of other questioners had asked Jesus this question in one form or another all throughout the Gospels. Mark 10, Mark 12, Matthew 22, Matthew 27, Luke 18. They have similar type of exchanges. But no one had ever had the temerity to ask, and who is my neighbor? Since Moses' day, Jews have been told to love their neighbor as themselves. Leviticus 19.18 reads, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against uh, any one of your people, but love your neighbor as this yourself. I am the Lord. The rabbis had defined neighbor very narrowly. As any Jew, perhaps a proselyte, someone who was converting to Judaism, but definitely not Gentiles. Um, there was a commentary on the Old Testament in Jesus' day, a midrash, which read, uh, We are not to contrive their death, but if a Gentile be in any danger of death, or, or be in any danger of death, we are not bound to deliver them. If any of them fall into the sea, you shall not need take them out. Who is my neighbor, indeed? So, Jesus tells the expert in this law a story, not about defining neighbor, but about being one. The priest is coming down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, no doubt because they had finished their two weeks of service in the temple. Uh, priests were members of the upper class. Uh, they'd have likely been riding a donkey or other such animal. The man is beaten, stripped, and is looking half dead. Uh, half dead uh, is actually a technical term in Jesus' day. Uh, because of all the Old Testament rules about dead bodies and the problems they cause, the rabbis had gradients to describe the appearance of a dead body. And then they had rules, a whole system of rules, developed on how to deal with them. Half dead is the second last rung on the ladder for the rabbis next to last breath. And last breath is right before dead. So this guy is in a serious condition. The priest sees him and passed by him. Uh, the priest could not come within four cubits of a dead body. A, a cubit was the length of a person's forearm from their elbow to their tip of their finger. Uh, and he couldn't come within four cubits without becoming ritually unclean. Uh, if he did that, he couldn't go home. He'd have to wait and get ritually uh, purified again. And after being away for two weeks, he was commuting. We can understand that, right? Living around the greater Toronto and Ottawa areas. He was trying to be a good father, a good husband and priest. Uh, he was trying to get home. It was the system, you see, that was keeping him from this unfortunate stranger. Besides, this road is notorious for robbers. So dangerous that a thousand years later, the Crusaders will build a fort halfway along the 17-mile highway to stop exactly the kind of activity Jesus' story relates. But life in the kingdom? is a life lived for others. The, uh, the Levite comes along not long after the priest. Uh, he'd have been walking most likely. He doesn't, ha doesn't have as many rules and restrictions uh, on him not being a priest. Um, so the text says in verse 32 that the Levi came to the place, the Levite came to the place and saw him, but he too passed by on the other side of the road. In his commentary uh, on this parable, 
Kenneth Bailey makes the point that the priest only goes down the road. The Levite comes to the place. The Samaritan comes to the man. It's very likely that Jesus' audience would have known uh, that the Levite has likely witnessed the priest see the dead man and not stop. The system keeps the priest from stopping and caring. The priest's example keeps the Levite from stopping. Kenneth Bailey, the commentator I just quoted, grew up in the Middle East, and I was actually a missionary there for 20 years before becoming an academic. And He makes the point that um, having actually walked most of the old road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, that uh, they would have seen each other. Uh, the Levite likely saw the priest do nothing. And no matter what way the Samaritan was traveling, he too would have seen or surmised that both the priest and the Levite had encountered the half-dead stranger and left him for dead. There are always reasons to not do the right thing. The priest and Levite's silence that day uh, almost cost the half-dead man his life. You know, who is suffering because of your silence? Our silence as evangelicals. How is the system we're a part of getting in the way of people experiencing the risky, gracious, costly love of the kingdom of God? How is the example or expectations of others clouding your vision of the good God wants you to do? Are we so busy trying to be religious that we forgot to be human? James chapter 4, 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. Life in the kingdom is a life lived for others. The priest, the Levite, and now in verse 33, but a simple, pious Jewish layman. No. They also worked in the temple. They too had even fewer rules than the Levite and way fewer than the priest. That's who Jesus' audience that day was expecting. They were expecting him to make them the hero of this story. Verse 33, uh, but a devout Greek-speaking convert to Judaism. No, uh, they'd have been surprised if a Gentile convert had been a hero, but not shocked. Uh, the early church was full of Gentile converts to Judaism. Cornelius was one of them, or close to being one of them, or maybe even but a group of Jewish women, or maybe even but a God-fearing Roman soldier. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, never. It's hard for us today to understand just how hated the Samaritans were to Jews in Jesus' day and in his audience that afternoon. Uh, Samaritans lived around Mount Samaria. Uh, they were both ethnically and religiously heterodox. Uh, they were Jews who had long ago intermarried with the various pagan peoples that first the Babylonians and then the Persians moved into Judea, who had also mixed uh, their Judaism up with lots of pagan occult practices and beliefs. There were all sorts of uh, ancient texts I could quote and read and uh, talk about curses that they call down on each other to illustrate this hatred. But to give you an idea of just how shocking the Samaritan as hero would have been to Jesus' audience, 
Consider the following. Kenneth Bailey, who lived and worked in the Middle East for nearly 40 years, he says that in all his time there, he himself, when he preached, never had the courage, nor ever saw uh, uh, any other speaker use a good Israeli in a story when speaking to Palestinians, nor ever use a good Arab in a story when speaking to Israelis. Forty years of living and preaching and speaking and teaching, never using one of the other community as a hero when speaking to the opposite community. Samaritan comes to the person left half dead. In the ancient Near East, as today, dress and speech were two of the ways you could tell a friend uh, from who was an enemy. The man is naked, we're told that. He is half dead, unable to communicate. Friend or foe, Jew or Samaritan, rich or poor, no one can tell. Yet the Samaritan doesn't just pass by, just doesn't come to the place like the Levite. No, the Samaritan comes right to him. That's emphasized in verse 34, where we're told he went to him. He's going to provide relief, not rubberneck at this man's tragedy. Uh, he's going to risk his life not preserve his holiness on this still dangerous road that afternoon. He's going to see a person, not a problem, left beaten, naked, and half dead that day. Life in the kingdom is a life lived for others. As I noted earlier, the priest and Levite were no doubt leaving the temple after uh, their two weeks of conducting worship on behalf of themselves and the people. Uh, they'd have been part of selecting and sacrificing animals, making grain and peace offerings, mixing some with oil and pouring wine over others. Uh, oil was involved in no less than 22 different ways in the Second Temple sacrificial system of Jesus' day. Uh, wine had at least six different liturgical uses. But who really worshipped that day in Jesus' story on the road going down from Jerusalem to Jericho? When Saul chose religious observance over obedience, what did Samuel assert in 1 Samuel 5:22? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Who poured out wine and used oil to truly give the Lord worship, the worship that he wants. David proclaimed in Psalm 51, 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Who was the real priest and Levite, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God that day? Luke chapter 10, verse 34, The Samaritan bandaged his wounds, pouring on, uh, pouring on what? Oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Life in the kingdom is a life lived for others. I told you earlier that I thought Van Gogh's version of the Good Samaritan was a secret self-portrait. Uh, Van Gogh, like all the Impressionist painters, 
of the 19th century started painting themselves, painting self-portraits. Vincent did no less than 25 of them, often because he was so poor he couldn't afford to paint models, so he painted himself. And I told you that the Good Samaritan was painted while Van Gogh was recovering in hospital. While in the asylum, Vincent and his brother Theo carry on as they always had a correspondence by letter, constantly. Slowly, the older brother comes back to himself. The Good Samaritan, as I have just touched on today, is a story about a surprising hero showing risky, gracious, costly love to a stranger. Risky uh, because the thieves could have left the man there only to attract an even more wealthy victim. Gracious because there was nothing in the half-dead man that the Samaritan could have identified as him requiring or meriting his help. Costly because of the time, the resources, and the money expended to care for him. This is a portrait of Theo that Vincent painted of his brother in 1887, three years before the Good Samaritan. What do you notice about him? Now look again at Van Gogh's Good Samaritan. Painted in an insane asylum, while his family and his fellow painters had passed him by, with a white bandage around his head, covering his ear, being hoisted up on a horse, painted at the most costly, dirty, personal moment when the Samaritan had to physically connect the half-dead man basically along the entire length of his own body to get his patient up onto the saddle. Who is Vincent painting here? Look at that Samaritan's beard. Vincent painting here. Look at the Samaritan's beard. Life in the kingdom is a life lived for others. I think that Van Gogh's Good Samaritan is a picture of he and his brother Theo. Theo alone is the one writing to him. Theo alone is the one paying for his convalescence. Theo alone is the one who stands with his older erratic genius brother to the very end. You know, they died only six months apart and are buried together. So sometimes living life in the kingdom means taking risky, gracious, costly moves for strangers around us every day that need us to, well, they need us to stop being silent, to stop only rubbernecking at the tragedies we see, and to stop passing by on the other side off to our next religious family or commercial duty. But sometimes living life in the kingdom also means showing risky, gracious, costly love to those closest to us who are simultaneously those easiest to love and hate. Who needs you to end your silence today? Who needs you to stop commuting past their tragedy? Who needs you to treat them like a person, not a problem? Life in the kingdom is a life lived for others. God bless and thank you. Life in the kingdom is a life lived for others.
I hope you are touched by the 